Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are continuing to talk about being Christian. I didn't realize that it was going to take us quite this long to talk about this, but I assume from the feedback that I've been getting that people have been really benefited from this series. And so we're just going to keep going as long as it takes And I will tell you in advance that at some point we will reach the end of the benefits of Christianity. And the last of the benefits of Christianity that I'm going to speak about is our eschatological hope, which is also going to lead us into eschatology, which could just go on for several more weeks. We just don't know. But every time I sit down at my desk and continue constructing these messages and fleshing out the messages, the whole of the Bible just keeps coming back as as elements of the benefits of Christianity, and the subject just keeps growing and growing and growing. And so I don't mind. I could go to my grave admonishing you all to be the Christian. That would be okay with me. Eventually, we will get to our Ephesians and Colossians study, if the Lord tarries and I live. But then again, Feast of Trumpets is coming up. Just threw that out there for no other reason than to let you know it's coming up. Last week, we talked about Jesus as our high priest. But we only talked about one aspect of Jesus as high priest. We talked about the fact that he took on flesh and blood so that he would be like his brethren, so that he could understand and empathize with our condition, with the difficulties of being human. He got tired. He got hungry. He was abandoned by his friends. He knew what it was to be human and to suffer. Well, this week, we're also going to talk about Jesus as our high priest, but we're going to look at another aspect of it. But in order to understand that aspect of Jesus as high priest, we have to back up a little bit and talk about us. I mean, us collectively as human beings. Whenever we're talking about Reformed theology... It's always incumbent on us to go back to the foundations of who human beings are and what human beings are like, the biblical anthropology. I'm not going to elongate the topic this morning. I'm going to assume that you know that the Bible says that you're just no darn good. I will assume that you know that the Bible says that you're sinful, that you're depraved. And that when Christ died for you, you were an enemy of God. You were an enemy of all things righteous. There was nothing holy or good or attractive within you 
that would cause God to choose you for salvation. But then to really amp up how bad you are, Satan himself, who, by the way, the Hebrew name, Satan, from which we get the word Satan, that name means the accuser. Well, Satan, our accuser, according to Revelation 12.10, has been acting as a prosecuting attorney in the high court of heaven, and he's been doing it every day, and he's still doing it now. So not only are you depraved, not only are you sinful, not only are you fleshly, but every time that you're sinful and depraved and fleshly, the prosecuting attorney is in heaven going to the judge and arguing his case against you. That's really bad news. Here's what Revelation 12.10 says. I'm going to start reading at Revelation 12, verse 7. There was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before our God day and night. Pay attention to the details. What's he currently doing? He's accusing us before God day and night while you're sleeping. He's busy talking bad about you to the high court of heaven. And as I have pointed out frequently during the years, if you're anything like me, you're very aware that when Satan accuses you to God, he's usually right. He's usually telling the truth on you. This actually is what you're like. This is what you did. This is what you thought. You're actually guilty before God, and the prosecuting attorney is up there repeatedly, day and night, accusing you because that's what his name means, and that's his function, is to accuse you of your guilt. Okay, so... If that were the whole story, if that was the end of the story, if that was the way that heaven is set up and there was nobody also pleading your case, then you would be absolutely hopeless. You would have to admit that not only were you absolutely as bad as the Bible says, but you'd also know that not only does God, who in his omniscience would know you're that bad, he also has an accuser who is constantly accusing you, reminding him that you're that bad. And so God, in his magnificent glory, handed the function of advocate, of intercessor, to our high priest. 
And that language of intercessor is really, really important language. It means to plead the cause of somebody else. And so because we have an accuser who is constantly accusing us, we also have a high priest. Now, last week I said to you that the function, the job of the high priest was to take sacrifice to God. He sacrificed on behalf of the people. The same way that a prophet would hear from God and then bring God's stuff to the people, the priest would sacrifice to God on behalf of the people. So the priest's job was to intercede on behalf of the people and make adequate sacrifice to appease God and to propitiate God's wrath except that the high priests that were actually here on the planet, the thousands of years of high priests in Israel, had to keep going every year, year by year, into the holy place, sacrificing animals, spilling blood, going through the ritual again, over and over and over again, because none of their sacrifices were ever sufficient to actually fully pay the sin penalty price and totally cleanse the people for whom they were interceding. The writer of Hebrews says that and says, if any of the blood of the goats or the blood of the bulls had ever successfully taken away sin, then the high priest would have stopped doing it because the price would have been paid. But the very fact that they had to go back and do it every year, every year, every year was a testimony against Israel that they were constantly sinful, 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 continually. And every year they had to make sacrifices that temporarily appeased God but were not sufficient to actually wash away their sin. And that is, again, why it is such good news that we have a high priest who is risen into the heavens who instead of taking the blood of goats and bulls, took his own blood and made full satisfaction before God for all of our sin. Now, if he had just done that, and that just became a fact of history, that he died and he made that intercessory sacrifice one time for us in the courts of heaven, that would potentially be enough, potentially be satisfying enough, except that our high priest also is alive. He is always living for the purpose of interceding for us, so he's constantly pleading our cause and his own cause by being able to say to God, look at what I already did, and the blood of my sacrifice is not only sufficient, but I'm here to plead the sufficiency of my blood, and let's not ever forget what I did when I saved my people. So not only was the price paid, but you also have... A high priest who is interceding for you before God, who every time Satan rightly accuses you, he then pleads his finished work to intercede for you. How good is that? By the way, I didn't just make that up. Turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7, and we're going to read that exact thing so that you know that this is completely biblical theology. Hebrews 7. 
It is difficult to find a good place to start in Hebrews 7. Let's start in verse 17. For it is witnessed, the NASB adds the words of him, just so you understand that this is the witnessing of Christ. This is about Christ. It's written, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We don't have a lot of time to go into it, but Melchizedek was the priest that Abraham came across, that Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils to. Melchizedek is identified as the priest of Salem, but he is not part of the Aaronic priesthood. The priesthood of Aaron is a completely different tribe than the tribe of Judah, out of whom Jesus came. So since Jesus was from Judah and not from Aaron's lineage, he didn't qualify as a high priest. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying he's of the high priesthood following Melchizedek, which is one of the reasons that I argue that Melchizedek was probably a Christophany, because nobody, no human, could qualify to establish the priesthood that would culminate in Christ himself. Only Christ is adequate to create his own priesthood. And so he is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, not the order of Aaron, because the order of Aaron was also sinful, which is why the order of Aaron, before they went into the Holy of Holies, on the Day of the Atonements, would have to sacrifice for themselves so that they were ceremonially clean before they would sacrifice for the rest of Israel. They were also sinful. They were sinful men going before a holy God interceding on behalf of other sinful men. But our high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, is righteous and holy and peaceful and and not from the lineage of the sinful priests. For on the one hand, says verse 18, for on the one hand, there is a setting aside of the former commandment because it's weak and useless. He's talking about the law now, the former commandments, which also included the former priesthood, which also included Aaron as the high priest, The writer of Hebrews is saying, if there is a high priest from a completely separate order, then that demonstrates that that whole system didn't work and therefore has to be set aside. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of the former commandments because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. May I put a little emphasis on that long as we're here? The law, ultimately, the law of God, the Deuteronomical law, the Levitical law, the law at Sinai, ultimately made nobody perfect, which is why Paul would pick it up in the New Testament and say that the purpose and function of the law was to demonstrate the sinfulness of human beings who couldn't keep it. The law was fine. The law is righteous. Read Romans 7. Paul says, the law is good. It's perfect. It's righteous. It's holy. There's no problem with the law. The problem, he says, is with us. We can't keep that law. So therefore, the law never made anyone perfect. I actually like the fact that the writer of Hebrews doesn't just say it made no one perfect. He goes the rest of the way and says it made nothing perfect. 
There was no perfection. There was no perfection to the worship. There was no perfection to the sacrifice, which is why they had to keep coming back and sacrificing year after year after year, because it never actually took away sin. There was no perfection within the law because it was weak and because it was useless, because human beings just couldn't do it. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope. Since the law didn't make anything perfect, we don't hope in the law. Our expectation is not built on the law. Our hope, our expectation, our confidence is based on the higher, better covenant and the higher, better priesthood, which follows after the order of Melchizedek and not Aaron. There is a bringing in of a better hope through which, through that better hope, we draw near to God. Okay, the contrast is the law, nothing. The law, nothing gets perfected. But then through this better covenant, through these better promises, through this better blood, through this better priesthood with a better high priest, we're able to draw near to God. Well, that would be perfection. That would be completion. That would be establishing everything that the law simply could not establish. Verse 20, and inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn, that's the oath part, and will not change his mind. And he said to Christ, you are a priest forever. Now those former priests, the Aaronic priests, there were many of them through the years. There were many high priests through the years. You know why? Because they kept dying. Every time they would raise up a high priest, he would do the work for a little while, and boom, dead. New high priest, and they just kept going. But Christ is a high priest forever, and it is promised to him from God who took an oath and said, you are going to be a high priest forever. So that establishes the priesthood of Christ as an everlasting priesthood. Hold on to that idea because in a moment it's going to become really, really important. Verse 22 says, so much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. So we know that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. We know that salvation by grace through faith is better than the law that made nothing perfect. And we know that the blood of the sacrifice of Christ is better than the blood of the sacrifice of goats and bulls and animals that could never actually perform the complete cleanliness and elimination of sin. And so Jesus has become the guarantee for this whole better covenant. If in fact Christ died, if in fact he got up again, if he sailed off into the blue, if he's sitting on the right hand of God, if all of that is true, which is plainly declared in the scripture and demonstrated in history, if that is true, then our high priest is a guarantee of everything else that the new covenant promises us. And so that's why we have hope. That's why we have confidence. That's why we come boldly to the throne of grace, because we know that our high priest, our intercessor, has already guaranteed the success of the covenant by which we are being saved. You got it? Mm -hmm, sir. 
verse 23. And the former priests, that would be the Aaronic priests, and the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. That's what I just said to you. There were many of them because they kept dying. But he, verse 24, but he, Christ, on the other hand, because he abides forever, because he's ever living, because he continues in the station as high priest, he holds his priesthood permanently. Okay, the writer of Hebrews is trying to emphasize the fact that he is a priest forever and that he holds his priesthood permanently. Again, hang on to that because it's going to become really important to you in just a moment. Remember that he is a priest forever and that his priesthood is a permanent priesthood unlike the Aaronic priests. Verse 25 says, hence, in other words, because of all that, knowing all that, hence also, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he is always alive to make intercession for them. Oh, well, now it just got really good because our accuser is accusing us day and night before God. But in that high court of heaven, we also have an intercessor who also is the judge's son, who also is our high priest, who also is pleading his own blood, his own sacrifice, and his own permanent, ever-living priesthood. And the fact that he rose again from the grave and lives forever as a priest means that he is always there and always available to plead our cause to God as he intercedes for us, which he ever does because he ever lives. That's a big benefit. When we're talking about benefits of Christianity, having a high priest who not only has constant availability to your judge and then can plead his own cause because he's the judge's son and then can plead his own blood which according to the writer of Hebrews Hebrews 10:14 by his one sacrifice he perfected forever those that he sanctified so his one sacrifice was sufficient to completely pay the sin debt for all those people for whom he died, which gives him the ability to stand before the judge and plead his own blood, plead his own sacrifice, plead the fact that he went to the earth, he came to the planet, he died as the sacrifice, he gave himself, gave his body, took on the wrath of God in our place, therefore he can stand before the judge and plead that entire case and say, and I did all that for Leon, therefore... He can look at the accuser of the brethren who is accusing them day and night and can say with all confidence who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect. The charges of Satan, no matter how true, don't stick. Why? Not because of you. Not because you were good enough. Not because you were prayed up enough. 
not because you attended enough church services. There's nothing in you that would cause God to say, well, I'm going to be merciful to him anyway. You're right, Satan. Everything you've said is right. Everything you've said is accurate. And he is a rebel. And he is a God-hating enemy. That is all true of him. But, you know, I'm just in a good mood. It's a Tuesday. I feel like letting him off the hook. I mean, none of that is going to do it for you. You have to have someone who is equal to and better than the accuser in order to intercede for you, make your case for you, and plead his own sacrifice for you so that he is interceding constantly, ever living, continually, eternally pleading your case because you're not good enough to plead your case. You can't make it to the high court of heaven. And if you did get there, you'd be cast out of his presence. But your advocate is constantly pleading your case. Now, the Bible uses this kind of judicial language over and over again. God is referred to as a judge. You're on trial. That's a fact. And the accusing, prosecuting attorney is there night and day prosecuting his case against you, which is why it is so important to know that not only is Christ your high priest, but we also read in the Bible that he is your advocate. And George is really going to like this because that word means he's your attorney. He's there pleading your cause. Let's finish this section of Hebrews and then we'll go look at where the Bible says he is your attorney. Hence also, verse 25, he is able to save forever. By the way, with everything that we have just described, if Jesus accomplished your salvation and it is an everlasting salvation and he saved you forever, exactly how saved are you? Forever. If Jesus, not you, if Jesus, not Aaron, if Jesus, not the law, if Jesus saved you forever because of his finished sacrificial work and he's always pleading your cause before God, if he has saved you forever, what can you do to get you unsaved? Nothing. Nothing. Because he's also the one who paid the price for your sin debt. He knew what you were going to be like when he did it. And the circumstances of life and the difficulties of life and the trials of life can't separate you because he came, took on flesh, and knows what it's like. He's your elder brother, and he knows what it is to be human. And he's your high priest, and that allows him to sacrifice to God on your behalf. And he's your advocate, and he's able to plead your cause, plead your case in the high court of heaven. I mean, that's about as complete a salvation as I can come up with. I can't think of anything that is lacking in that scenario. He's the one who knows. He's the one who did it. He's the one who established it. He's the one who paid the price. He's the one who brought about the new covenant. He's the one who rose to the right hand of the Father. He is the Son of God. He is your high priest. He is your advocate and attorney. And he's there constantly, ever living, to make intercession for you. That's about as complete as it gets. 
You can't think of anything, and I dare you, go ahead and try. You can't think of anything in that scenario where you go, well, if he had just done this, if he had just added this one little wrinkle, then I would feel secure. Do you know why you don't feel secure? Do you know why you have doubts? Do you know why you worry about your eternity? Because you spend way too much time thinking about you. If you think about him, if you think about what he did, if you think about what he accomplished, it's going to bring you all kinds of peace and security and comfort and, and praise and worship. And you're going to glorify that one because you're going to know that he actually did everything necessary to establish you being saved forever. Amen. And by the way, saved forever, pretty good benefit. It was fitting, says verse 26, that we should have such a high priest because he was holy and innocent and undefiled and separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. None of that could be said about any of the Aaronic priests. None of the sons of Aaron were ever holy. None of them were ever innocent and undefiled. None of them were ever separated from sinners. They lived with the sinners. They lived among the sinners, and they themselves were sinners, proven by the fact that they had to sacrifice for themselves before they could sacrifice for the people. And yet we have this high priest who is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted into the heavens, who does not need daily, like those ironic high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Once for all. The contrast is huge. Year by year by year, the dying high priest had to go in with other dead things. They had to kill they had to take the blood, they had to pour the, the blood around the capareth uh, and onto the capareth between the angel's wings, and they had to keep doing it every year. Year by year by year, they had to keep on doing it. And yet, the writer of Hebrews tells us that he did it once, once for all. Why? Because it was a perfect sacrifice. Because he's holy and undefiled. Because he's separated from sinners. That was the blood that was shed to establish the covenant of salvation by grace through faith. Which covenant saves us? Which high priest stands ever alive interceding for us? And it was fitting that we would have that kind of high priest. It's not fitting. It's not appropriate. It's not ultimately going to establish anything if our high priest turns out to be Renan. And he agrees. That's not really going to do us much good. Which is why, by the way, I'm just going to throw this in for free and then we'll just move on. The Roman Catholic Church believes that their priests, who they refer to as priests, that's why they're called priests, their priests supposedly intercede between you and God when they do the Mass and when they stand at the front of the church and do all of the worship stuff on your behalf. They are interceding for the congregation. And you know what they accomplish? Nothing. Not a 
thing. We don't need them. You know why we don't need them? We don't need any other priest. We don't need any other pope. We don't need anybody else, any preacher, any pastor. We don't need anybody to stand in the gap between us and God. We don't need any human to try to do that because we already have a high priest who is in the heavens, who is a completely perfect and righteous and holy priest who sacrificed himself in order to buy his people for himself to his own glory by his grace And he does not need to daily, like the other priests, offer up sacrifice for his own sins because he doesn't have any sins. Instead, he could sacrifice for the sins of the people because this he did once for all by offering up himself. Big benefit. Big benefit. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak who are incapable, who can't satisfy God on your behalf. But by the word of the oath, that promise that God made to Christ saying, you're going to be a priest before me forever. But by the word of an oath, which came after the law, God appointed a son made perfect forever. And that is why since he is a perfect high priest, since he is a perfect sacrifice, that is why his single sacrifice could perfect forever those that he sanctified. It's wonderful. It's so exciting. If you can ever grasp what the writer of Hebrews is saying when he's comparing the old covenant law and priest to the new covenant high priest who is perfect forever and therefore he can perfect us forever and therefore he can save us eternally because he ever lives to make intercession for us. If you can ever get a hold of that, you're going to walk out of here thinking, man, what a wonderful God who could construct such a wonderful plan for such a worm as me. He's a wonderful God. All right, so turn to 1 John. I promised you a moment ago that I would show you that not only is he your high priest, but he is also your advocate. He is also your lawyer. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to start right at verse 1. Now remember a moment ago that I described us according to how the Bible describes us. The biblical anthropology is that we are still in this flesh. We are still engaged in this battle between the Holy Spirit who has taken up residence in us and our desire to be right and good and holy. But unfortunately, we're stuck in this flesh. And in this flesh... We have all the worldly desires that go with that, and those worldly desires draw us away from God and into sin. So 1 John 2, verse 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Okay, good. That's a good plan. That that is a, a good Hope and intention for the church. Uh, Every week I get up here and I talk to you in the hope that you won't sin. But I'm also realistic, just like Christ is realistic, just like he came and shared flesh and blood with us and he knows what it's like. And he was tempted in all ways like we are and yet without sin. 
So he knows what temptation is, and he knows the difficulty of the flesh, and he knows the longing of the flesh, and he knows what it is to be tired, and he knows what it is to be hungry, and he knows what it is to have emotion. He knows what it is to be angry. He knows all of that. He demonstrated all of that. So he also knows that even though it is ultimately the desire that we do not sin, that we walk in righteousness, that we do be the Christian, that we do walk according to our profession, even though that's us, can you say with any kind of confidence that you've made it through a whole day without sinning? No, no. no you can't. By the way, why, when I'm standing right here, was the only voice that I could hear at that moment, a voice from the back of the room. Where were the rest of you? <laughs> My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But John is also realistic. He realizes that we're in the flesh and we're still going to sin. This is the same John who said that if we say we have no sin, then we're liars and the truth is not in us. So we have to admit that we are sinners, but then our goal, our purpose, our hope, our desire is to live a righteous life according to the Holy Spirit that lives within us. But then if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. So John wants you to understand the same scenario that I have been laboring to explain this morning, which is not only do we have a lawyer pleading our case before the high court of heaven, before God the judge, but the case is built on the fact that he himself is the propitiation for our sins. So when we sin, the reason that God does not hold that sin against us, remembering again that when it comes to righteousness and holiness, a miss is as good as a mile. You, you sin once and you're guilty of the whole law. You break one law, guilty of the whole law. And that means if you sin in any way, whether it's something that you actually do, something that's whether it's something that you thought, whether it was some intention of your heart, whether it was a missed opportunity to do the righteous and the proper thing at that moment. You, you just, you're sinful all the time, and when you sin, the reason that God does not hold you guilty for the entirety of the law is because you have an advocate there who ever lives who is constantly making the case for you, and his case is based on his own finished work that he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Do you understand the word propitiation? That is actually an old word. It is not unique to Christianity. In the Old Testament, we read about like offering children to the fires of Molech. The people believed in the foreign nations that worshipped Molech, who was a metal god, and they would stoke a fire in his metal belly, and he would become red hot, and his hands were outstretched. You may have seen drawings, wood carvings of him, in order to appease his wrath. They would put their children in the hands of the red hot god, and the screams and cries and ultimate death of the children was meant to propitiate that God. Paul picks up that idea, that language, and says, that's what Jesus did. 
that thing that you're attempting to do by propitiating these foreign gods through the death of your children or sending your children through the fire, that never actually accomplished anything because those gods are demons or those gods simply don't exist and are objects of your imagination. But the idea of propitiating the wrath of God is a real idea, and actually that's what Jesus did. By his single sacrificial work, he actually completely propitiated. He put away, he paid the price for the wrath of God. So not only did he pay for your sinfulness and your sin debt, but he also appeased God's wrath so that God is no longer angry at you, and therefore he can stand in the high court of heaven constantly pleading his own blood, his own sacrifice, the establishment of the new covenant, and his propitiatory work so that God doesn't get mad at you because he's your constant advocate, because he's your high priest who lives forever, who is constantly making intercession for you. It doesn't get better than that. It's just good, 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 good news. And when I talk about the benefits of Christianity... Does it get more beneficial than that? Think about what Christ did for you. I mean, consider the price that he paid because he didn't just pay the price. He's now ever living to point God back to the price. Say, look, I did it. I did it, and that's adequate, and you can't be mad at that person because he belongs to me. And you can't be wrathful toward that person. He belongs to me. You can't judge him for his sin, even though Satan's right, even though he is sinful, even though the accusations are true. You can't judge him because I, as his high priest and advocate, have already paid the price sufficient to pay for everything that you would hold against that person. So charge his sin, charge his guilt to my account, and I'm your son, and you ever loved me, and I already paid the price, and therefore that sin, that depravity on his part, ends up cast as far as the east is from the west into the sea of God's forgetfulness. He casts it away from him completely, and that's the reason that you are not judged for your sin. It's not because of you. It's because of everything that Christ accomplished on your behalf. So number four, I said all that to say, if you're keeping track, number four is Jesus is your advocate and your intercessor. Do you know what that means now? Do you understand what a benefit that is? As a consequence, number five is you have peace with God, you have rest from worry and fear, and you have confidence and contentment that nothing and no one can remove from you. Now, You can't have all that if the basis of your faith is you. If you think by your goodness, by your law-keeping, by your walking in your righteousness, that that's how you're going to establish your standing before God, 
then you're going to be sorely disappointed. But only if you know everything that we've been talking about this morning, about Jesus as your sacrifice, Jesus as your high priest, Jesus as your intercessor, Jesus as your propitiation. Only if you understand that can you go through the rest of your life having peace and contentment because you know for a fact that God's not mad at you and it's not because of you. So therefore, you can't mess it up. God's not angry at you because of what Christ did. And the more you concentrate on what Christ did, the more peace you're going to find in your heart. Like I said before, the reason that people don't have peace, the reason that people don't have confidence, the reason that people worry, the, the reason that people are scared of death is because they spend their time looking at themselves contemplating their own navels, worrying about their own behavior, worrying whether they're going to be good enough to get to heaven. I'll save you the trouble. You're not. You're not good enough. You're going to be made good enough. Your sinfulness is removed from you, and then the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you, and therefore you're going to be able to stand before the God of ages and not fry. And that should give you a tremendous amount of peace and safety and comfort, and there's nothing, nothing, nothing in this life that can take away that peace once you understand it, once it's established in you, once you get it, nobody can take that from you. Turn to Philippians 4, if you would. We're going to start reading at Philippians 4, 4. And then we're going to read all the way to verse 14. Because this section starts with Paul saying, Rejoice in the Lord Always, and again I say, rejoice. See, you can't find happiness in this world and the circumstances and the experiences of this world because happiness is based on what's happening. It depends on happenstance. All of those words have the same root. Your happiness is based on what happens. If it happens good and good things are happening to you, then you're going to end up happy. But if bad things happen, it's hard to be happy. It's hard to rejoice. But you can rejoice in the Lord always. Good circumstances, bad circumstances, no matter what happens, you can always rejoice in the Lord if you know everything that I've already told you about your high priest and your advocate. So Paul can then say that your rejoicing is based on what you know of the finished work of Christ and not on the circumstances of this life. The circumstances of this life are going to toss you around. I like the phrase, life beats a man to death. But none of the circumstances of this life can take away our internal sense of joy and peace and contentment because we know that we're okay with God. And if you're okay with God, it doesn't really matter if you're okay with everybody else. You can be okay with everybody on the planet, and if you're not okay with God, you're in a heap of trouble. Mm -hmm. But if you don't get along with anybody else on the planet, but God's okay with you, you got it. You got everything. So rejoice in the Lord. Always, and again I say, rejoice 
and let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Paul is saying, remember to walk like you belong to the Lord. Remember to act like you belong to the Lord. Let everybody know the gentleness of your spirit, that you are gracious, that you are long-suffering, that you are kind, all of those things that we have been reading for weeks now. Let all men know that you're like that and remember always that the Lord's near. Be anxious for nothing. Are we able to do that? Nothing. Just don't be anxious about anything. Don't worry about anything. There's a phrase that I picked up years ago from a psychologist who said, nobody ever had a nervous breakdown worrying about today. Because you got today handled. You know how today is going to go. Today, you got some clothes on. You're going to eat something. You're going to be all right. Today, you've got handled. But people go nuts worrying about tomorrow. What about next week? What about a month from now? What about next year? What about, oh, no, what am I going to do? That's what gives people nervous breakdowns because they worry and worry and worry about what's going to happen next, starting tomorrow and from there out. What's going to happen? Well, if you know that the God of ages has tomorrow in his hand, and if you know that the God of ages has already established you, glorified you in heavenly places, if you know that it is already the conscious decision and will of God to put his spirit in you and give you to his son, then you know that you are eternally secure because of his finished sacrifice. And therefore, is there really anything to worry about? First off, whoever changed anything by worrying? I mean, did you ever sit down and just worry hard enough that suddenly things changed? Things don't change because of your worry. The only thing that changes is you get ulcers. The only thing that changes is you. It's one of the benefits of forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't to the benefit of the person you're forgiving. Forgiving other people is beneficial to you because you're able to just let go of it. I've got to start reading or we're never going to get done this morning. I'm looking at the clock on the wall and I don't like it. Somebody cover the clock. We'll be done at a reasonable time. By three. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Why, instead of worrying, would you go tell God all of your supplications and your prayers. You know the word prayer essentially just means ask. Go and ask God. Go pray to God. It's why the old English phrase pray tell means I'm asking you to tell me. To pray to God is to ask God. To supplicate God is to ask God. It's to request things of God. It's to say I have needs. I have desires. But then you do that with thanksgiving and you make your requests known. You go to God and you say, this is what hurts. This is where the problem is. Or this is what I need. Or this is what I'm hoping for in the future. You go and you let God know 
with thanksgiving, your requests. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. So why don't we worry? Because we take our worries, we take our fears to the God who's sovereignly in control of everything, knowing full well that he is going to supply everything necessary for our lives. Here, let me prove it to you. Did you make it so far? Yes. To this moment? Yes. However old you are, whatever you've been through, did you make it so far? Yes. Why? Because God has faithfully brought you this far. That's why David could say things like, I'm old and I have been young and yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or the seed begging bread. He was able to say, I've looked back over my life and I've seen the faithfulness of God and I don't expect him to abandon me now. So why don't we worry? Because we know the one who's in control of everything is on our side. And he's going to give us what we need. Verse 8. Finally, brethren, now that you know all that, now that you have this peace of God that surpasses understanding, have you ever lived through a crisis? I know I got to go. I know I got to keep going, but I can't pass these things up, these, these little realities that I just don't want to let go of. Have you ever been in the midst of a crisis like, let's say, oh, I don't know, a pandemic that wasn't? Have you ever been in the midst of a crisis where everybody else was losing their mind and you felt safe, you felt secure, you felt okay? How is that? Because other people are going to look at you and say, how can you be okay with that? How can you be getting through this? Aren't you going through the same circumstances that the rest of us are? And yet you have this peace, you have this calm, you have this confidence, and it passes understanding. Because God, through Christ Jesus, guards your heart and your mind. That's why you have peace. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What is worry? It's certainly not thinking about those things. Worry is sitting around thinking about all the negative things you can't do anything about. Worry is sitting around concerning yourself over stuff you have no control over and fearing what's going to be the outcome. Should you be thinking about those things? Should you be concentrating on those things? Should you be filling your brain with those things? No. Instead, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, whatever is right, whatever is honorable, whatever is pure, whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise, dwell on those things. If you're thinking about that, you're not worrying about stuff because you're concentrating on what is true. The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, says Paul, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. What a wonderful name, the God of peace. Instead of worrying, the God of peace will be with you. 
But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. I know how to get along on humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And that secret is I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you've done well to share with my affliction. So the opposite of worry is having complete confidence in Christ and knowing that the circumstances of this life, whether you've got a full belly or whether you're going hungry, whether you have an abundance and overflowing more than you need or whether you're suffering from lack, through all of these things you can be content if you know for a fact that God himself has determined everything and has determined that this is what's going to happen in your life right now. That's going to give you confidence. It's going to give you a peace that passes understanding and it's going to give you the strength to endure as you're going through those circumstances. You don't have to turn here. John 14, 1 through 3. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. And if it were not so, I would have told you. Because I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may also be. Number five benefit of being the Christian is that you have peace with God. You have rest from worry and fear. You have confidence and contentment that nothing and no one can take away from you because you know for a fact that God who does not lie sent his son to be propitiation for your sin and that that same advocate that same high priest is in the heavens right now preparing a place for you you individually so that where he is you can also be with him because that's his intention for you and therefore the trials and the difficulties of this life Don't count for anything, and you can have peace and contentment regardless of your circumstances if you just keep in mind what your advocate and what your high priest has already done for you. Got it? Amen? Amen. Are there any questions about what you have heard so far this morning? It's good news, isn't it? You can see now why the gospel is called good news. Because the more you learn about it, the more secure you are in it, the better it makes you feel. So when you walk out of here this morning, don't turn to each other and say, wasn't that a good morning at church? Or, gee, didn't Jim seem erudite this morning? Or not even, didn't you like those verses? On your way out of here, talk about how wonderful God is to be this gracious and this beneficial to people like us because he did absolutely everything necessary for your full, complete, eternal salvation and that's a big benefit. All right, Steve, if you would, everybody grab a hymnal, turn to verse, turn to song 46.
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.